Welcome to Something Positive for Positive People. I'm Courtney Brain. Something Positive for Positive People is a 501c3 nonprofit organization connecting people who are navigating the effects of stigmas and mental health resources. I am interviewing my therapist. What's up, man? How you doing? I'm fine. How are you? Good, good. As you probably already know, considering we've been building a relationship over the last year and almost a half. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm happy to have you here. I think that, um, for what something positive for positive people is doing and connecting people with therapy, uh, it was only right that I bring you on here, not only to share my experience with therapy and with you directly, but also for you to be able to share what it is that you have going on. Sure. Um, okay, where do I start? Man, so I listen, I can start. I will talk this whole thing and like, if you want, this can be just me. I don't want to say I'm interviewing you necessarily. Um, real quick, do you have headphones? Oh, no. All right, we're, we're fine then. Just try to keep the phone in one spot and we'll be fine. Okay. Um, but yeah, I I know where to start. So uh, this is here, and then the letters behind your name. I don't want to butcher them. What are they? They're L P C M A L P C. Got it. All right. So M A L P C. Uh, so Derek has been my therapist from April. It was April 2020. Right as the pandemic was, I guess, becoming taken seriously would probably be the best way to put it. And I remember one of the first questions that you asked me specifically was, what brings you to therapy? And in that first exchange, I remember responding with telling you what I do personally um, and for something positive for positive people and how I wanted to be able to manage any time that burnout or compassion fatigue flared up for me. I wanted to be in a good space of taking care of myself so that I could continue to offer support to other people. And that was something that you helped me with. Like, that was what I came in for. And that actually was more of a surface symptom of something far more in depth that really didn't come up um, like full circle until probably the end of our sessions. But looking back on it, I can see where it popped up here and there. Um, to go back a little bit and to give you a idea of me and where that came from is because, like I said, I've been a therapist for the last 12 years or so, since 2007, no, 2009, I'm sorry. I graduated with my master's from Webster University in 2009. So, um, from the start of that, um, it's been a rocky road. Um, something interesting about me, a lot of people don't know, is that, um, I, like I said, I'm a therapist in a wheelchair. So I already come with physical boundaries. So imagine me coming with mental health boundaries. And there have been some things within these last 12 years of my career that I've had to endure um, to help me become a stronger therapist. One of those things being... Um, like I said, being a therapist in a wheelchair and having to fight in the industry to show that I'm a better therapist and to get myself mentally together for what I had to endure. There are some traumas that I had to endure myself, like trauma with being um, sexually assaulted, trauma with abandonment, trauma with 
you know, just having some sexually transmitted infections, you know, that I had to go through mentally. So when I come to people in the way of why are you here or, you know, why are you behaving this way? It may come off to some people like it came off to you as, you know, like, who the fuck are you? I don't know you. But, you know, this is what has been given to me and brought to me, and I'm only giving back to what was given to me. It's it, And the interesting thing is that I always have these conflicts with people as if I think I know it all, but I've experienced so much with you know, being disadvantaged and having to prove that I'm the best, that I know what I'm talking about, that you really don't get to see the real surface of who I am. That makes sense. Yeah. And given the lines that are uh, boundaries in place between therapist and uh, client, I want to make sure that people are aware here that like we're no longer working together. So this interview is more so a lot of what you're saying right now is even a surprise to me. So we've worked directly together over the phone. Uh, and I imagine that throughout the pandemic, being uh, disadvantaged or in a wheelchair has probably not really hindered uh, work for you, has it? Because now more people are at home. Um, no, it actually hasn't hindered work for me in a sense. Um, one of the reasons that I stopped working, which you know, because I was working with you during the time, I had two losses. And one in particular was the loss of my uncle in May of last year, and then the loss of my brother, which will actually be a year as of this coming weekend. So, you know, I was going through my own grief while helping others. So as I'm going through it with you, I'm actually talking to myself to kind of give myself the encouragement to pull through. The only thing that was keeping me from literally crashing down was helping you or helping someone else. Oh, I was going to say, me particularly? Damn, I appreciate that. (laughs) But uh, that is a powerful thing because even as we spoke about my diagnosis, uh, the first one of the first things that you said to me was that you didn't think that I had dealt with my own. And hearing you say, as you were going through your period of challenges and struggles with loss and grief, that helping others was what helped you, I can 100% relate to that experience. Uh, as I've done this podcast and a nonprofit, I've seen myself being helped in a lot of the experiences from other people. Would you say that that's kind of similar of an experience that you have as a therapist? Yes. Um, one of the things that kind of also helped me help you was initially, if you remember, I said to you in the very beginning, and I talk. And one of the things that you all don't know is that before I talk to you, all, I talk to my own therapist. So I talk to her about the things that I'm going through with you all to help me get the strength to give the advice back to you all. And she said to just be as transparent as possible. And if you needed a moment to say, I can't do this today, I can't do it. I just can't do it. That's just what it is. No matter whether you need the money for whatever reason or you just, this is something that you're trying to do. If your mind and your body is telling you not to do it, don't betray your mind and your body. 
Yeah. One of one of the things that I also remember telling you was that in the connection you were so focused on the diagnosis. And so the level of comfort that I tried to give you, I also shared my own story in retrospect of what happened to me. So I'll share it in more detail here. So I was diagnosed with um, HSV herpes in 2009, right before I was supposed to um, graduate with my master's. Um, And it happened during an assault. Um, Because one of the things that I didn't share with you, which you probably already know, is that I'm a part of the LGBTQIA community. Um, So I had dealt with some assaults at that time. And even now, this travels even 12 years later, I can see through the sexual experiences that I've had that um, that it carries over into how I deal with people now. So is it I'm looking for that connection or just that moment, if it makes sense? So I knew that you were struggling with something like that. And without trying to blur the lines, I gave you an example of what it looks like, because actually I was dealing with it at one point. Yeah. Do you feel like there's, I guess, what's the line between, like your therapist said, be as transparent as you can, and then perhaps not being professional or uh, being a friend more so than a therapist? Well, um, one of the things that we learned in CIT school, which is called counselor and training school, is that if it's relevant to the conversation, share it. You can always have empathy and sympathy, but know the difference. Yeah. So you mentioned uh, having shared your own uh, experience with STIs uh, here. So I'm curious to know what is it that makes sharing? Because that's really stigmatized. So you as a therapist sharing that in the space while you're working with a client, you're the therapist and perhaps being transparent and just relating to their experience. I guess, why is it so easy for you to share something like that, to disclose your STI status in this setting? And is it different like in your day-to-day life? Um, there is kind of a difference, if it makes sense. Because, Well, let me break it down to you like this. It's easier for me to share it with someone who has these challenges and problems because they've experienced the feelings that I've experienced or they may experience some feeling that I've experienced before. But it's different on the home front because with me and in the LGBTQIA community where the first thing you say is, well, I'm HIV positive or I have um, HSV and some will be like, yeah, okay, that's fine. And then some will be like, well, I don't know if I can deal with that. But then you add on, well, I'm in a wheelchair or, you know, I'm blind or whatever. And it's like, well, I don't know if I can deal with that, but you can fuck me, but you don't know whether you can deal with the other things. So that's, the harder thing that I've had to deal with. It's not necessarily sharing my experience because that was hard at one point, but it's the other stuff that comes to deal with it. It's, 
Well, oh, I have to feel like I have to take care of you. Oh, I feel like I have to bend you or twist you or do this to you. Well, if you want to have the experience with me, have the experience with me. If you don't, tell me. Don't play with my emotions like that because that's what's going to piss me off more. Yeah. All right. So in the disclosure conversation, you don't just have disclosure about your STI status. You also have to disclose that you're in a wheelchair. Um, and you mentioned dealing with the LGBTQIA community, like that's the community that you date within. Uh, the conversation seems to me from what I just heard was STIs aren't necessarily as big of an issue as some of the day-to-day stuff that is not necessarily transferable, like you being in a wheelchair, how that impacts sex. Correct. Now, do you find it more, is it more challenging to disclose those things, those non-sex related things or the things that don't necessarily impact the other person? Because I imagine that you're fairly independent. So your disability or being in a wheelchair doesn't necessarily impact people as much as they may think on the surface. Correct. But when you have someone that's not really educated into you, it's, it's hard to explain it to people People are more visual. But if you don't have a person that's willing to see the visual part of it, that's the difficult part. And then the work that I have to do is, it's like, well, what's wrong with me? Why do I have to feel this way? I didn't do anything, but just shared my experience. Or it's like, and another thing that I have to deal with is, you think that because I'm in a wheelchair, and we're going to be as frank as possible, you think that I'm in a wheelchair, don't think I won't fuck you up or don't think I won't, I don't have anything that's, you know, a knife in my pocket or a gun. It's, you have these common misconceptions about this particular person, but literally I'm a teddy bear heart. I'll give anything that I have, not necessarily money-wise, and that's another thing, that um, because this person it's in a wheelchair, he'll buy it. You know, like we had the conversation about when you're dealing with someone, you're buying their, remember we had that conversation? Like when you're dealing with someone, you're buying their love. You're you're putting up with what they're asking you to do just because you want to be with them. That whether you're buying them dinner, you're buying them for approval. Oh, that's what you meant. I was like, I don't remember that. <laughs> but now, yeah, now that we're at this portion, yeah. So to be as transparent as possible, at some point in time, I have dealt with um, people who are in the sex industry, um, whether they're sex workers. Now, the thing is, is that this goes back to the conversation that we've had before, that if I choose to deal with this person. I'm telling you what it is up front. I have to deal with the disability. I have to deal with the STIs. I have to deal with X, Y, and Z. Don't put a label on me because of a price. It's, oh, well, the rate is $600. If it's $600, fine. Then later on, don't put another price on it because it's more work, which goes back to If I'm connecting everything, I'm going to round everything out. One of the things that I have had to learn from my therapist, are you being desperate? 
are you just wanting to do it? And that's the conversation that I was trying to have with you. Um, was it, are you being desperate, Courtney, little Courtney, or are you just wanting to do it? So one of the things that I've had to um, decipher for myself is, is that how much do you love yourself? How much do you value yourself? Because the, the challenge that I'm still going through today is, is that, you know, I may not feel like I'm the best therapist at the moment. And sometimes it gets the best of me. You don't know that I'm feeling that way, but I am. But the thing that pushes me forward is that you have a gift. Um, you were able to do these things and you are helping others, whether they tell you or not. Yeah. Uh, I was holding on to a relevant question and then just completely lost it. So the next thing we're just going to go ahead and transition into is how you navigate the challenges that you face work-wise. Um, given that earlier you said you were more disadvantaged even um, in your work field. Um, even if I go back a little bit further to give you some um, background of who I am. Um, I am the youngest of three. Um, I have an older sister um, who's the oldest and then I have um, my brother that was a year younger that's now deceased and then it's me. So, um, and then my mom, she worked as a bus driver and a bus operator for 30-something years. So I grew up in a middle-class family. We didn't have everything, but we had what we had. Um, so the way that my family life impacts my work life is that everybody feels, and this is my words, not theirs. Um, and this is one of the challenges that I've had to deal with in therapy. Um, people feel that because... I'm in the chair that they feel that they have to take care of me or look out for me as if I don't have the brain capacity or the capability to do things. I'm often underestimated. Um, so to me, in my mind, that's like, you know, you're my family. You're feeling like this. Why can I have a voice for what I'm trying to do? Whether it's I want to move to Vegas or whether I want to move to Atlanta, I know what challenges there are in doing that. Because you have a fear of me moving away. Don't put that on me. I may have a fear, but it may be a totally different fear than you have. So in my mind, that has always affected my work life because I'll think about something that my mom or my sister has said, and they won't necessarily come to me and say it. They'll say it amongst each other. And then if I don't have everything figured out, it'll be 21 questions as to why you're doing this, or why are you going to Atlanta for two months, or why are you doing this for two months, or why are you doing that? For example, I went to Atlanta for seven years. 
I moved away and I went to school. In that seven years, um, I had full-time employment. Um, I was a full-time student. So um, in doing that, I was in in a very writing-intensive program. Um, So the challenges in that was being able to balance work, school, life. You know, like I said, I had been in the field of therapy for about five years at this point. Um, So just having the challenge of being able to get up on the bus to go to school, to go, not to school, but to work and traveling and doing all that, even something as simple as getting into a lift. Um, people not being able to understand that I'm still doing what I have to do for myself and not having any family around. This was something that I always wanted to do for myself, um, even as an 18-year-old when I went off to college because I initially went to SIU Edwardsville um, just for that um, piece. We can go into that later. Um, but that challenges my work um, balanced life because even in my field of therapy, I've worked for places like Employment Connection, um, helping people who are on probation and parole, you know, helping them be proactive citizens back into the community. I've had to run entire agencies because I'm the one that had the license outside of the clinician on the other side of the room and not being able to get the respect that I needed because it's like, well, you have a check, go and get your check. We can't pay you, but you're having me do all the work. Or working for places like Family Resource Center, um, working in the drug court program, and you're dealing with a white therapist who's been in therapy for years, and I'm dealing with black men that are, or young boys that are, 11 to 17, I know what it's like to be a black man. And you're telling me how to help people that look like me. Why do I have to prove to you my worth and my capability? And so for me, that comes off as people feeling like I'm confrontational. I mean, I'm always wanting to argue and fight, even with the whole experience with Clark Atlanta. I've had to deal with people that look like me, um, somebody that's black, LGBT, um, who's not very comfortable in themselves. I came into this, you know, school knowing that I had barriers. I wasn't the best writer, but imagine being in school as an older version of yourself and knowing your strengths and your weaknesses, but you're asking for you know, help from other people um, in terms of the services that the school offers. If this school is not accessible for you, then you're going to have to speak up for yourself. It's a different version of me at 18 versus a different version of me at 33. So I had to go into this as, you know, the adult professional me who's had work experiences, who's had life experiences that people don't necessarily understand. So throughout this whole entire experience, it was, I don't have these services, so I'm going to have to fight at every chance that I get asking people to give me these services, and I don't get them. So 
to make a long story short without going into full detail with what happened, I made it through this experience, but without my degree. Got accused of plagiarism, got accused of all these different things that weren't supposed to happen because of the lack of support. Um, I couldn't find housing because the... um, the nature of the situation was was that you have to find somewhere that's accessible for you because of your disability. The other thing was was that my grades weren't the best because of, again, the lack of accessibility. And because of that, the plagiarism situation happened. Then, on top of that, as I told you earlier, um, when I was supposed to graduate um, during that time in 2016, like maybe a week or so before I got diagnosed with HIV. Now having to deal with all of that and just keep pushing forward. So when I came back to St. Louis in 2017, I went in a state of depression for about a year. Um, So that was difficult for me because going back to your original question, the work-life balance was that I haven't been in the field for four or five years at this point, or maybe three or four. So trying to get jobs and trying to get jobs that were accessible to me wasn't as easy for me anymore. So I had a difficult time getting a job until BetterHelp came along. Here we are. Yeah. So it, it goes back into all of the things that you asked, there have been many of things that I've had to endure where people don't necessarily understand the experience that I've gone through. Um, so my attitude and demeanor is one thing, but the truth is another. So we've got disadvantaged in terms of um, a lot of accessibility, a lot of things that are primarily accessible to people. Um, in the academic space, we've got the physical disability wheelchair. We've got herpes diagnosis. We've got um, discrimination in the workspace. We've got HIV diagnosis. All of these compound things. And then you also mentioned depression after having gotten your HIV diagnosis. You as a therapist, how did you handle this? And then how should someone else handle not necessarily all of that in that order but what we're talking about here are like compound traumas like these are life events undesired circumstances stacked and stacked and stacked and stacked on top of one another so what was your process of navigating that for yourself i'm gonna be i'm gonna be all the way transparent for you and be honest A lot of the things that I was telling you when you were saying you dealt with sex, that's how I dealt with it. That's how I was able to speak to you in terms of what you were doing. And that's real. But the honest part about it is is that um, through the support of my therapist, um, she has been challenging me and pushing me to become more self-aware and so learning my triggers and learning what um is 
important to me and what triggers me into these raging fits of doing certain things, I've learned and still struggling with. Not, let's just keep that a buck and say that I'm not completely healed and, you know, I have it all together because I don't. Uh, let's just say I'm taking it day by day and still trying to navigate what's good for me and what's not good for me. So I don't have a necessarily formula for how to deal with it. I just know that I have anxiety and I have all these other things. So place myself in spaces where I can meditate and figure out who Derek is now. Um, For somebody moving into their 40s very soon, it's I now no longer have the time and the space to allow these things to um, get up under my skin. And even now with the death of my brother, it's now I'm even more emotional. Um, so I've just learned to allow myself to let it out. And then once I let it out, um, we can deal with it later when it comes to the therapy piece. But yeah. just just to acknowledge, because in the past, there has been a tendency to not acknowledge my feelings because I grew up in a space that's very, very verbally abusive and sometimes that's physically abusive. So, um, there are ways that in the moment I can handle it and then there are ways for me to process it later, even if that's late at night when everybody is asleep, you cry it out. Um, There may be some kids in the background even now, that's why we um, took so long to schedule this interview because you may hear kids in the background um, and I'm just having to just suffer through all of this. So it's, it's, I don't really have an answer to that, but the best answer that I have to it is just meditation and prayer. Yeah. I think that what you just gave actually was an answer. Um, taking it day by day. There's no one stop shop solution. There's no necessarily a formula that works for everybody. It's one of those things where you just have to show up and make the decision to whatever it looks like, heal and continue to do so. Healing is not like a straight line. It's not a straight shot. It's a spiral, all types of zigzags and misdirections that all take place all at one on that path. Um, What I heard here and what you just explained was your healing looked like even if just simple awareness, it was acknowledgement rather than what could have been avoidance. Is that accurate? Correct. So even with the feelings thing, and uh, I can speak to this from my own experience, uh, you and I wrapped up, I believe it was three weeks ago um, with our sessions. And the last session that we had, you mentioned to me, we talked about crying. And I always had this belief about crying, like, oh, I don't want anybody to see me cry. Nobody's going to see this. Uh, even at funerals, I remember like holding it back and then eventually just 
not crying at all or eventually like crying when I was by myself. Um, the last time I remember like crying, crying was when my grandmother had passed away. And you and I have talked about this um, in a lot more detail. And the day after we met on a Wednesday, yeah, it was actually the day after because you mentioned uh, like why I cry. Typically when I cry, it's like tears of passion or like I'm watching some heroic shit happen. Marvel, when Iron Man died, when uh, Captain America picked up Thor's hammer, all this like kind of like Marvel comic-y anime stuff. Those were the kinds of things that inspired me to the point of like tears. And I recall you mentioning um, that those perhaps being tears of passion. And for me to reflect on where I am now compared to where I was uh, the next day after our last session, I made space for that. Like I made space for myself to feel my own emotions and cry. So I like sat down in the dark at the gym and I was just like, <laughs> pat my legs. And uh, I played like some songs that trigger uh, emotional responses from me. And I like had a tear fall, like two from each eye and I got up, worked out, went about my day. Once I finished up in the morning with the workout group, um, it was kind of like in my mind about how, uh, as I'm going even through yoga teacher training, certain emotions are stored in certain parts of the body. So the two main areas that I've struggled with having emotions were um, in my hips. Like if I sit too long, they'll get tight. Or if I'm in one posture too long, my back will get tight. So I even played the music again and I went on to my yoga mat and I was just trying to move those emotions. So a lot of like back stretches and hip stretches. And it was about 45 minutes. This is my first time telling you this. We haven't talked since then, but it was about 45 minutes of just like that, that ugly ass cry too, like that, <laughs> like yelling and shit. I was right. like, fuck, where is this coming from? Why is this happening? And so that is something that I can speak to in the sense of the uh, healing power of crying. Because when I got through, like I recognized the trauma in the hips, that's the root chakra in yoga. Uh, and that symbolizes our primal need, survival, our right to be here. And you and I already talked about like the situation with me prior to being born, all of the, the stuff that I shouldn't know about in terms of my mom going through with the pregnancy. So like abortion conversations are very triggering for me because I know how close my mom was to getting an abortion with me. So there was trauma in my hips as a result of that. And then in my back, like we talk about me not crying, even when the heroic stuff came on, like all of that, the passion and like my constant need to prove I deserve to be here through perhaps advocacy, through being super nice and overly giving and kind and compensating for other people. I got to really cry that out. And for the first time in a while, like I've been able to sit and hold myself in yoga postures. I don't even want to say in a while. I think this might be the first time. So in any of the hip stretches or any of the back stretches, like I don't feel that cramping sensation to where I like have to move. So that's what crying did for me. I got to feel the own, my own intensity of emotions of passion and recognizing like that I deserve to be here even. So that's the power of crying. Um, and to add on to something that you talked about, we talked about 
some of the issues that you've had with your father, and I can speak to that. Um, one of the things that also has um, made me who I am as a person, um, and I talked about this with my therapist, was that, um, to be honest, and I'm just going to say this, um, I don't know who, um, I have siblings other than the ones that I mentioned to you. Um, I don't know who they are. If I went past them on the street, I wouldn't know. Um, I don't know who the other side of my family is. Um, so that has always, um, stuck with me. Um, my dad, my, another thing that happened while I was away at school at Clark Atlanta was, um, my dad passed away. We don't have, we didn't have a relationship. The last time I saw him was, I might've been 10. And like I said, I'm about to be 40. So, um, the only time that I, the only memories that I have of him is behind a closed door. And that's behind a closed door with my mom. So to me, the door signifies um, me um, being isolated. Speaking of my mom, she's calling. <laughs> Hold on. Yeah. Sorry. So I don't know um, the other siblings that I have. Um, so the only thing I can remember is a closed door being behind me and the door representing abandoned, being abandoned. Why don't you want me? Why don't you want to be with me? And I talked about this with you in my sessions, in the sessions that we had, uh, to kind of give you a frame of reference. Um, the last conversation that I truly remember having with him, I might have been like 12 years old. Um, and actually, it was the day before my 13th birthday. And I remember he called um, my mother because he always tried to get in contact with my mother because um, one of the things that kind of stuck out to me was my mother broke up with him when I was like 10 years old and she decided to become a Jehovah's Witness. And so he was always angry because of that. And so the other thing was, was that he was married. So I was conceived out of an affair. So um, I remember saying to him that my birthday was the next day. And he was like, well, I don't give a fuck. And so that plays over and over and over in my mind. Over. And I'm an adult now. But I don't give a fuck symbolizes fuck you, just what it means. And it's like, it's nothing to do with me, but it has everything to do with me. You're mad at her, but she wanted you to have a relationship with me. So I think that's part of her protecting me out of, even still to this day, me being 
the age that I am, she still treats me like I'm her baby. And even with my older brother, he was the way that he was. And, you know, um, my brother was, um, for lack of a better sense, he has his issues with her. I don't know what they were per se, but he was an addict. He um, had diabetes. He had congestive heart failure. He had, um, he was a crack addict. He was a heroin addict. So there was always some need for approval with him and her. And there was never resolved. There was always constant arguing back and forth between he and I, he and her, he and my sister, like literal physical fights that I can recall happening because one, partly because of the addiction and two, because of some jealousy and abandonment that he had and it even spills over now that my uh, brother is gone with my sister and her kids. It's it's a lot. But to get back on track with everything that you asked me or that I was mentioning was that a lot of what I went through in terms of how I dealt with people in sex, it's like I don't want to, I just want to feel good for the moment and even if I if it's just the moment, don't bother the situation. Don't make me feel worse than I already do. And I notice I feel good for that moment. And then once that person gets what they want, it's like, well, again, fuck you. So that fuck you for me represents, okay, you playing in my face again. So I'll just sit back and chill until I can't take it anymore. And then when I can't take it anymore, it's the fuck you, bitch. You know, like you don't see the other things that go on with me on social media. It's like I'm trying to diffuse the narrative that it is about me, but I'm constantly getting poked, 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 and poked. And people don't realize that on the inside, I'm a damn mess. But you can't see that because you're on the defense with me. So the challenge for me is how do you ignore these things and focus on the fact that you are a really good therapist, you are creative, you are all these things so that people can see it, not to prove anything to them, but to show that you are talented and that you have other things going on besides some bullshit that doesn't matter. Yeah. So despite all your challenges and life circumstances, what made you become a therapist? Like, I didn't even know a therapist was an option to be. I hadn't remembered seeing any therapists or counselors that look like me in order to inspire me to want to be that. I wanted to play sports. I remember... Um, in high school, um, being, because I was an average student, above average student, so B's, um, I remember being in my 11th grade, um, 
psychology class at 17 and saying, I want to be a therapist because I always, you know, liked helping people. And so I remember that just being a dream for me. Um, so I took my first psychology class and then the following semester took my um, first sociology class and the dream started from there. Um, so when I went away to school um, in the fall of 2001, it's, oh, I wanted to become a psychology major. Um, so I did. And I always stuck with that. And so that became a reality for me um, when I got my master's in 2007. I mean, not 2007, when I started the program in 2007 and got my master's in 2009. Um, so what happened along the way, of course, as you know, with anything, as you start to get into the field and you find out what burnout is, which you kind of figured that out trying to start something positive for positive people, that when you're not mentally healthy as you thought you were, then the things that you thought that you handled start to come back up. Like I said, as the abandonment and the assaults and everything else, like one thing that you don't know is that prior to that one assault that um, I mentioned earlier that caused the um, herpes diagnosis, I had been assaulted before. So um, at 14 and then at, again, at the age of nine, um, my mother doesn't know this. Uh, so that was part of my reasoning for wanting to do this as a career, um, because I was trying to heal the inner me. Yeah. So essentially, like, you created a career that shit allows for you to heal that young version of yourself. Right. My question to you is what does helping people look like? How do you know that you had a successful um, line of sessions with a client or a successful session, whatever success looks like in terms of your goal of wanting to help people? Um, I remember a time, like I said, when I used to work um, for Family Resource Center in the drug court program, um, I used to, like I said, I used to work with the adolescents. Um, and I remember getting on the Metrolink train. This was slightly before I ended up moving to Atlanta. And I was on um, the Metrolink train with a friend who's no longer with us. And this guy, this young man walked up to me and was like, what's your name? Is your name Derek? And I said, yeah. And he was like, do you remember me? My name is Charles. And you helped me um, when I was in the um, drug court program when I was 17. At the time, he might have been like 18 or 19. And he said, I just want to say thank you. And I said, you're welcome. 
and I had seen this young man in maybe like two years prior to that. And so for him to remember me and to still want to give me thanks and praise, that was confirmation for me that I had done my job. Yeah. Is there a more tangible short-term way of knowing? Like, how do you feel that a session was successful with someone? Um, I think the more tangible way of feeling that a session was more successful is if you start to feel the, the language and the um, nonverbal communication change within the person because if your initial session with me was initially fuck therapy da 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 and then a year or so later after that you're like well I've learned things about myself that I didn't know I'm much more calmer that to me shows that the progress is working Oh, okay, so there was just like a shift from resistance to realization, basically. Right. Okay. Uh, shoot, man, Derek, we got 10 minutes left. Um, I can go on forever asking you questions, but uh, we'll maximize the rest of this time by just uh, giving you space to share anything that you haven't got to share that you want to on this podcast episode. And then uh, I can close this out. Uh, just make sure you include where people can find you so we can direct you to the website so people can uh, get in contact with you about your services as well. Um, I created a brand called um, Roll On Rebel. Um, and the name came from, like I said, I have um, had a lot of um, internet beefs. It's a play on a joke um, with people with wheelchairs, why don't you roll on somewhere? So I created Roll On Rebel. And so, you know, I got tired of people making fun of me about it, so I decided to capitalize off of it. So um, that's the name that I use for a pseudonym. Um, so you can find me on Facebook as Roll On Rebel. That's R-O-L-L-O-N Rebel. Um, on Instagram, Rollout underscore rebel and on Twitter, um, Rollout underscore rebel too. Um, my website is rollonrebel.com. There will be um, interviews like this on there, um, some testimonials of people who have had therapy with me, um, and soon to come, maybe a documentary of just what a day in the life is for me because people, I think people are very visual and seeing, okay, you see people in wheelchairs, but each person's experience is different. So my goal with this is that I want people to see that, yeah, I'm still living my life and I'm still doing what I want to do for a career. Let's see the shit that goes on with my relationships with my family or friends or even just my sexual relationships. And, and that's another thing. People don't understand that people in wheelchairs have sex too. And there are things 
that people in wheelchairs want in terms of sexual relationships. There are common misconceptions of um, things that go on with people in wheelchairs during sexual um, acts. And so my work in creating this brand is to dispel these myths of what these things are. Like, you can only have sex in one position. You can't have these kinks or it smells back there. This could be with anybody. But my goal is to get people to educate themselves and to open your minds and experience. Because, hell, some people with no legs, one eye, have the best sex in the world. But you don't know that because you're, you have a preconceived notion of what you think this person can do. So that's my goal. All right, roll on, Rebel. We got Derek Sykes here, Dispelling Disabilities, an interview with my own therapist. Um, you shared a lot here, uh, and a lot of it was super vulnerable, um, unexpected. And I wonder, do you feel like that's something that will more so help your career, or is that going to hurt your career? Because if I had known a lot of this out the gate about you, uh, as me, I'd have still worked with you. I'd have been a lot more transparent. I'd have probably cut through all the bullshit and been like, man, I got this going on, this going on, this going on, rather than having to do like this little song and dance of Are You Safe? And then I can see where uh, perhaps like black men, the black men that I've sent you, we've probably gotten the most progression out of um, being straight black men working with an LGBT therapist. Do you feel like them knowing that out the gate provides any sort of resistance as well? No, and I chose not to share this. Well, at a certain point, I chose to share it. But to me, I want them to realize that me being LGBTQIA, LMNLP, whatever, does not dispel the work that I do. I'm a damn good therapist. But as long as I'm giving you the tools and what you need in terms of becoming your whole self, none of that matters. It becomes a problem if you're trying to sleep with me, which can't happen. Not saying that it would, but, you know, 